0: Friends, you're listening to How the West Was Cast, a podcast dedicated to the best of the Western movie genre. Boys, you gotta think like a dog till you smell like a dog. No self-respecting dog fetches anything unless he's good and feels like it. You wanna intimidate someone, give them the lazy eye. Oh Jim, I'm afraid to ask. Okay, what's the lazy eye? The lazy eye. (laughs) Now you do it. That was
1: the legendary Jimmy Stewart teaching Dom DeLuise the secret of the lazy eye in the 1991 classic An American Tale, Fievel Goes West. And on this episode of How the West Was Cast, our topic is animated westerns. Hello. My name is Matthew Chernoff, and I'm a screenwriter and an entertainment journalist in Los Angeles.
2: And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson, a film historian and the chair of the Department of Film and Media Arts at the University of Utah.
1: And joining us later in the show for a very special interview is acclaimed animator Phil Nibbling, who, along with Simon Wells, co-directed Fievel Goes West. We'll speak with Phil about making Fievel Goes West and what it was like working with Steven Spielberg, Dom DeLouise, John Cleese, and of course, the great James Stewart. But first, Andrew, why don't you set the scene and give us some
2: backstory on the subject of today's show? Here is a hypothetical question that I know our listeners will enjoy pondering. If you were teaching a 15 week college class on the Western, what movie would you show to your students first? There are a number of ways to approach this. Maybe you decide you'll organize your class chronologically, and so the first film would be one of the great silent westerns. The Iron Horse, maybe. There's a risk, of course, in starting with a silent film. Silent films can be an acquired taste. They have a style all their own. Familiar, yes, but still foreign. You want to start your class on the right foot, with a film that gets students excited. And to be fair, it wasn't the silent western that cemented the genre in the popular imagination. So maybe you begin with one of the classics, The Searchers, or Shane, maybe. But there are still risks. Either film, or another classic from the genre's heyday, can certainly be appreciated on its own, but the viewing experience is significantly enriched by seeing the film in context, by knowing what came before. This is all the more true of recent westerns, the majority of which, as we've discussed more than a few times on this podcast, are obsessed with including references to earlier westerns. So, where do you start? I long agonized over this question, and still do to a certain degree. But for a while now, I've opened my Western movie class with what may seem an unorthodox choice an animated short called A Cowboy Needs a Horse. In this six minute film, made by Disney and released to cinemas in 1956, A sleeping boy is dreamily transported from his mid-century home to the mythical Old West, where he and his trusty steed confront and make peace with a band of Indians, save both an imperiled stagecoach and an equally imperiled locomotive, and rescue the girl, only to then ride off into the sunset. I like this short for many reasons. It quickly conveys the degree to which the Western predominated the popular culture of mid-century America, and reminds us that cowboys and Indians adorned the walls and filled the toy chests and fantasies of children of the 1950s, much like superheroes or video game characters do for today's generations. While there has never been anything like a sustained cycle of animated westerns, the genre has appeared in cartoon form in both film and especially television. Characters like Quickdraw McGraw, Lariat Sam, and Hoot Cloot came about in the 1960s and 70s, and are, to varying degrees, still with us. All of the major Disney and Looney Tunes characters had Western adventures at one point or another, and I should also note that the animated Western has arguably had a greater purchase internationally, like in the movies and television series based on the French comic strip Lucky Luke, all of which are subjects for another episode, or episodes. On the American big screen, audiences have been treated to a range of animated westerns over the past 30 years, from mainstream efforts like Rango, Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron, and Home on the Range, to a relic of 1980s Saturday morning genre mixing, to a beloved and unexpected sequel to one of the great animated features of the early 1990s. Now, getting back to A Cowboy Needs a Horse, though. This film also does something which, when I stop to think about it, the Western in animated form tends to do especially well. It distills the Western down to a level that is appropriate for children, while simultaneously using those distillations as fodder for satire that can be appreciated by adult audiences. Not all animated Westerns do this, but many do, including some of the films we're going to discuss today.
1: Now, Andrew, before we speak with director Phil Nibbelink about Fievel Goes West, let's discuss some of the animated films you mentioned in your introduction. And the first one I want to highlight is the Oscar-winning Rango, released in 2011. It was directed by Gore Verbinski, who went on to make Disney's expensive Western flop The Lone Ranger two years later. Johnny Depp plays Rango, an affable chameleon who stumbles into an Old West town called Dirt when he accidentally falls off the back of his owner's car as they're driving through the Mojave Desert. Appointed sheriff after claiming to be a deadly gunslinger, the cowardly Rango is then forced to become a real-life hero when the town's water supply mysteriously dries up. Now, Rango's story is a variation on the classic stranger-comes-to-town narrative, and it's loaded with clever nods to many great westerns. This is a true love letter to the genre, and it's perhaps the most visually impressive film we'll talk about on this episode. It's the kind of movie you you need to watch several times in order to catch all the details, because it's just overflowing with amazing images and sight gags. So, Andrew, what are your thoughts on Rango?
2: References to earlier Westerns do indeed abound in Rango, from comedies like Shakiest Gun in the West to spaghetti westerns like A Fistful of Dollars, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Once Behind the West, maybe Cat Baloo, uh, but also other films. The plot of the film is highly reminiscent of Chinatown, and there are other touches throughout to films from Raising Arizona to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, This is a delightful film, and I'm glad we're beginning with it because it more or less exemplifies the point I tried to make in the introduction about an animated film that works on multiple registers. I've read some interviews with Gore Verbinski in which he expressed some frustration at the state of animation in what was then 2011, dominated as it was by Pixar and them DreamWorks, and him wanting to make an animated film that could be reminiscent of the films of Ralph Bakshi, something that might be for adults. Now, that isn't really a possibility with a big screen animated film of this nature. But I think he threads the needle exceptionally well when it comes to providing an entertaining and visually appealing Western narrative for children, along with myriad subtle and sometimes not so no- subtle nods to the history of the genre and some of its major players, uh, including uh, Clint Eastwood, who more or less appears Voiced by Timothy Oliphant as uh, the spirit of the West, I love the golf cart with the rattling awards (laughs) in the back. That character, the spirit of the Old
1: West uh, or spirit of the West, turns up in in varying degrees in some of the other films we're going to discuss here, where a certain character will sort of embody. The history of the Western and, and yes, you see that turn up in some of the films we'll talk about. And uh, when, when that character turns up in this film and Timothy Oliphant really deserves uh, kudos for his <laughs> Eastwood impersonation. It is hilarious. Um, when he turns up, the film just becomes such a, a, a joy for, for fans of this genre. It's, it, you feel like you're in really good hands with it. Uh, another character who's kind of like that is, um, Rattlesnake Jake. The, the big deadly gunslinger who's modeled. I mean, he's played by British actor Bill Nye, but if you, if you can't see Lee Van Cleef in the character design, then you're not paying attention. Everything from the hat to the mustache, that thin John Water yes. style mustache. Uh, he also has that Gatling gun tail. It's like out of a the Django films. He's there's, it's just full of those kind of wonderful,
2: playful visual references. And I really just enjoy it. You know, the other thing I, I quite like about this film is the references. As I intimated and as we've discussed, this is one thing that I, I'm starting to dislike about contemporary Westerns. Because oftentimes there's a self-referentiality that is used to criticize the Western. You know, the idea that you could actually believe in these myths is, is actually a, a failing on your part. And we, we see that repeatedly on the big screen, that you shouldn't believe the myths, that they're they're dangerous, that they – Are myths, and so never really had any basis in history. Whereas this is a film, and and maybe this is something animated westerns do more generally, that tell you that yes, the the myth is is a myth, but in that myth you can discover your true self and become the hero that you always knew you were.
1: The second film that I want to highlight is the Oscar-nominated Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron, released in 2002 and co-directed by Kelly Asbury and Lorna Cook. It was written by John Fusco, who also wrote Young Guns 1 and 2, as well as Thunderheart and Hidalgo, so it's safe to say he knows a thing or two about Westerns. More than just a great animated Western, I think Spirit is one of the best horse movies I've seen. It's perhaps the only film I can think of where a horse is literally the main character. Even in movies like The Black Stallion or War Horse, horses tend to play second fiddle, but spirit changes all of that. What makes it work so well is that the horses don't speak English in this movie. They speak horse. They whinny and snort and neigh, and that makes all the difference in the world. It it gives them an authenticity that so many animated movies lack. It's a testament to how well this film is made that you can tell exactly what Spirit is thinking and feeling at every moment, without any spoken dialogue. Now, we do get Matt Damon's occasional voiceover as Spirit, but it's far less intrusive than it would have been if the horses just stood there chatting in English with each other. This is a beautiful movie, and if you're a fan of Westerns and you haven't seen it yet, well, do yourself a favor and watch it after listening to this episode. So, Andrew, what's your take on Spirit?
2: This is indeed a a beautiful film. I mean, in some ways, this, uh, along with the next film we'll talk about, is a a relic in some senses of the time in which it was made, of of where feature-length American animation was in the late 1990s and early 2000s. You can kind of feel the influence of a film like The Lion King, not only in terms of how it deals with its animal subject matter. Uh, but also the apparent requirement that you need a middle-aged rock star to contribute to <laughs> your film in a significant way. So in this case, it's none other than Mr. Uh, Brian Adams. What, what I find really interesting and I think successful about the film is the integration between the hand-drawn and the computer animation. That the computer animation is actually used in a kind of painterly way, which gives us a sense that we're actually seeing – great Western paintings like a Remington or a Russell, that, that they are brought to life in, a, in a, a way that just I find incredibly vivid and exciting. So this this film is successful in almost every respect. It's also just a lean film that tells a really compelling narrative for all the reasons you said. I, I actually find the Matt Damon narration almost superfluous in certain ways because the animators have done such a good job of subtly anthropomorphizing the expressions of the horses so that we we have a clear sense of what it is they're thinking at any given moment
1: i really regret not seeing this on the big screen when it opened you know at that time i i did have and maybe some of the listeners have too, maybe an unconscious bias towards animation. I kept thinking I'm too old for animated films or they were too silly for me or they were just for kids. So, so I missed this one and looking at it today on a Blu-ray, it, it just feels like this would have played so powerful on a big screen. So, so I, I really wish I had seen it there. There are shots in this thing that look like they were shot by William Clothier. Like they're just gorgeous some of the vistas and then you know the landscape is just like you said painterly um, as far as the Brian Adams songs go <laughs> i love that guy um you know um from Kevin Costner's Robin Hood Prince of Thieves his theme song to that is one of the i think a banger and the, the fact that here I am. The the main song in Spirit didn't get nominated for a, an Academy Award. Is crazy. It's it's a really just a a sweet sweet song. Uh, it, it almost functions those songs as um, another voice for Spirit. We get we get the horse sounds. We get Matt Damon's voiceover, and then the Brian Adams song sort of act like a Greek chorus in the film and fill us in on on what the emotion is. It's it's really amazing. Uh, one thing I do want to Point out about the film's villain, the Colonel, is how incredibly close he resembles James Keach in Long Riders. Did you mm. did you catch that? He's voiced by James Cromwell, a great actor, but from the mustache to the facial features, he, this guy looks like Keach. It's uncanny at times.
2: You know, that's interesting. that That had not occurred to me. I think maybe. The more obvious references to George Armstrong Custer, and that's certainly how I interpreted him, with the you know the the facial hair, the the long flowing mane of blonde hair, um, sort of the way that he dresses, uh, which I, I suppose is interesting, given that as villainous as the character is, he also ends up being kind of honorable in the end. Not to give anything away, but there's an interesting exchange between him and Spirit, so between man and horse where they exchange this sort of knowing glance at the end of the film that I I find really quite interesting as a moment in the context of it being a Custer character, because we don't usually see anything admirable in any depiction of George Armstrong Custer anymore.
1: You're right. That ending, it's so unexpected in a way, especially with uh, animated films that you think tend to paint broadly with characters, good and evil. Mm -hmm. And that's not what happens here. There are moments when the colonel is about as vile as you can get, when he's about to kill spirit and yet it doesn't end that way this is not we don't see him fall in a puddle and we mock him it ends much more thoughtfully between the the hero and the villain and it's um You know, it makes you reassess some of the scenes that have come before the long horse breaking sequence, which is really the centerpiece of the movie. So that was, that's an interesting point of it. Um, for fans of the John Ford cavalry westerns, I think this film is going to stand out particularly well. So if you like movies like, um, you know, she wore a yellow ribbon and things like that, check this out. That's sort of the subgenre of western is going for in a way. Um, one thing to point out with spirit is that. It really didn't find an audience when it first came out. It was kind of a i don 't know what to' say a flop, but it, it did not catch on it, it It just didn't become the i think the film that they hoped it would. however, recently it's been rebooted almost as a series of direct to video films with a different take on on what spirit is all about and and aiming for a different audience and those have become from what I've heard, anyway, surprisingly popular. I, I haven't seen any of the the new versions, but um, it's it's an interesting that they've become more like for young girls who are really into horses.
2: That's exactly right. I guess you know, filling the the niche that My Little Ponies uh, vacated by becoming not about ponies anymore. Uh, no, I, I don't think I don't think it's an overstatement to say that Spirit is now a formidable franchise. That it spawned, I think, by this point, multiple television series and a, a recent. Uh, film that did, I, I believe, have a brief theatrical release that was really kind of a reworking of the television series. So th- th- it, it, this might be another um, trend that we end up talking about today, where th- these films, like, when they come out, are actually quite critically acclaimed, don't necessarily find the audience at the time, but then later do thanks to home video. It's time to break that horse. Get off of my back. DreamWorks Pictures presents
0: *A Spirit*. See how wild he is when I'm done with him, like no other. (laughs) From the Academy Award-winning studio that brought you *Shrek*, *Spirit*, *Stallion of the Cimarron*.
1: (laughs) The third movie that I want to highlight is Disney's 2004 western *Home on the Range*. Written and directed by Will Finn and John Sanford, and featuring the voices of Roseanne Barr, Judy Dench, and Jennifer Tilly, Home on the Range tells the story of three dairy cows who attempt to save their owner's farm by capturing a notorious cattle rustler and collecting the reward money. This is a silly, gentle, and somewhat leisurely paced Western, certainly nowhere near as frantic as Rango or as serious as Spirit but it's filled with lovable characters, very fun songs, and it includes some wonderfully stylized animation. There's a retro pop art quality to the imagery here that brings to my mind the vibrant colors and bold look of the 1962 animated classic Gay Paris. While some might find Home on the Range a bit too talky for its own good, I appreciate the movie's originality and its low-key charm. And then there's the film's show-stopping centerpiece, an elaborate fantasy scene where the villainous Alameda Slim hypnotizes a herd of cows by yodeling to them. For two glorious minutes, Home on the Range stops in its tracks and delivers a dazzling sequence that recalls the Disney masterpiece Fantasia. It's easily my favorite moment in the film. But what about you, Andrew? What's your take on Home on the Range?
2: I also like that sequence very much. Uh, to me, the, the first reference that comes to mind is the Pink Elephants on Parade sequence from Dumbo. So One potential take on Home on the Range is it harkens back to an earlier moment in Disney's history where it was in some ways willing to, on the one hand, have prestigious adaptations of fairy tales, but balance those with more comedic animated works. Um, I, I like this film, but it's, it's very much, I suppose, a, a casualty of another Disney film from around that time, The Emperor's New Groove. That film began production as a very sincere adaptation of the fable of The Emperor's New Clothes, um, kind of in the vein of The Lion King and Tarzan. And as I mentioned, it was going to be complete with original songs by a middle-aged rock star. In that case, Sting. But during the production of that film, it evolved was changed into a very eccentric self-referential comedy that ended up being a significant hit. It is a film that holds up very well to this day and is kind of beloved, a kind of shining beacon in what was in some ways a dark moment for Disney feature animation. So we clearly see that Home on the Range has tried to follow that path. I, I don't think it does so quite as successfully as the emperor's new groove it's a film that it sometimes feels a little bit confused about what it wants to be but i have to give it credit for embracing the the slapstick potential of animation getting the most out of its three bovine heroines who are each really distinct characters and have really funny interactions There are clever touches like where the aspect ratio of the film changes during the Alameda Slim yodeling number that, you know, harkens back to the widescreen westerns of yore. And how can you hate a film whose opening ballad includes the line, out where the bad are a whole lot better. If you're the type with a nervous bladder, yip, yow, your saddle's gonna reek.
1: Um, so what did your son make of this movie? Now, you you have a son, and mm-hmm. he's the perfect age, I would imagine, for some of the films we're
2: talking about today. So what what was his take on Home on the Range? He liked it a lot. He found it very funny. He responded really well to the, the slapstick. He thought the Alameda Slim sequence was just a riot. He was just in stitches during that. Uh, but but as you, you would imagine, or I suppose hope – uh my son has also seen uh more than his share of westerns for a, <laughs> a you know an adolescent boy in the, tw- the 2020s so it was interesting was for him to pick up on you know different landscapes to say oh i've seen that landscape that's monument valley uh, to pick up on some of the tropes to, to talk about other movies that were about cattle rustling uh but the 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 twist of the yodeling was completely unexpected and he just ate it up that is something that he had not seen before, and, and and frankly, I don't think any of us have seen before, and and maybe we'll never see again.
1: Now, when we talk to, about Rango, the spirit of the West, that character in yeah. this film, I think that character is sort of personified by Rico, who's a, a bounty hunter. He's one of the the few human characters, other than the villain, who gets a lot of screen time, and and there's a legend behind Rico. He signifies. The history of Western movies, uh, and so that character, w- when we find out what he really is, and that he's not the the hero that we expect him to be, it's kind of an interesting play, I think, that the film makes with with that specific
2: character. What, what do you think about Rico? I agree, uh, and I I didn't see it coming uh, while I was the first time I saw this film, and it still kind of surprises me. I have to say that. It, it sits a little bit uneasily with me because it seems like the easier choice. That's the type of thing that a, a live action film does is it makes you question the heroism of these conventional characters. And so the, the film does that in a way that I, I don't know, is, is something of a twist. But this is a film that contains myriad twists. So it, it, to me, is is not the the most clever thing that the film does. And it also doesn't really do anything with it it just hangs out there. There's no other suggestion that the myth of the West was wrong or that we we shouldn't believe it because the film ends up reaffirming most of those conventions in the end. The idea that you can have this wonderful life out in the West. Or maybe it's just that this is a film that gets back to that old ranchers versus cowboys. And we we side with the ranchers in this one. Maybe they can't be friends.
1: Like Spirit – this was another movie that really did not connect with audiences, more, more so than, than even Spirit. Huge it, it, flop. This, this was a big flop, like you said. And, um, you know, it, I think at the time it caused Disney to really reevaluate some of their hand drawn projects that were in the pipeline at that point. They, you know, reassessed what they were doing. It, it was also came at the worst possible time because that same year Disney had financed Ron Howard's The Alamo which was another costly bomb, another Western bomb. So it, Disney and the Westerns in uh, this particular year, it was not a good match.
3: I know a place, as pie. Welcome to Patch of Heaven, where the animals aren't just animals, they're family. Here, have an hour. Don't go near any luau, though. So. Walt Disney Pictures presents Home on the Range. Featuring new music from the composer of The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. Say, hey, girls. God milk? Well, if it isn't the phony express. I'm sorry, Pearl. They're gonna auction off Patch of Heaven. <laughs>
0: Alameda Slim. Just one more purchase and the whole dang territory belongs to
3: me. Luckily, I got it. They have a plan. We go nab that Alameda Slim and use the reward money to save the farm. You want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. Walt Disney Pictures presents A Story of Courage. They're stew meat. Teamwork. Move on, bounty hunters. Now I've seen everything. And utter madness. Yeah, they're real. Quit staring. Home on the Range on Disney DVD and Video.
1: Okay, so now we come to an animated Western that I wasn't familiar with until I met you, Andrew. (laughs) And that's Brave Star the Movie. Released briefly in theaters in 1988... It was a feature-length prequel to the TV cartoon series about a lone galactic marshal who protects the planet of New Texas from Stampede, a giant alien monster who looks like a cross between the Marvel Comics dragon Fin Fang Foom and one of Georgia O'Keeffe's cow skull paintings. Made by the animation company Filmation, which is best known for the He-Man cartoons they produced in the 1980s, Bravestar is a goofy mixture of sci-fi action and Western movie tropes. But I have to admit, I did enjoy watching it in prep for this episode. In fact, I actually had to watch it twice, because I couldn't quite follow what was happening the first time. This movie's (laughs) story at times feels like someone shredded a bunch of old Lash LaRue comic books and tore up a few heavy metal magazines, and then tried to reassemble them into a script. It's a very weird combo, but there's some fun to be had if you're in the right frame of mind for it. However, since Andrew currently has an original poster for Bravestar the movie hanging on the wall right behind him, I'm going to let him take over the discussion now. So, Professor Nelson, if you don't mind, the floor is yours for Bravestar.
2: Yes, in a distant time, in a faraway place, the planet of New Texas floats deep in space. Brave Star, (laughs) eyes of the hawk, ears of the wolf, strength of the bear, speed of the puma. There, (laughs) I did it. So Brave Star is not likely to be uh, known to many people. Even, I would say, today, where so much of our popular culture seems to be about uh rehabilitating even the most peripheral of characters from from this particular period brave star doesn't seem to have happened as as you mentioned this film is a a prequel to the series uh, brave star which only i think ran for one season and was the, actually the last animated series produced by uh, filmation before the studio shut down in 1989 so we have the series and then we have this film which gives us the the origin of Bravestar and his uh, antagonism with the villainous, uh, as you said, Stampede, and then his his minion, Tex Hex, who uh, are a villainous gang who are trying to control the carrion mines on the planet of New Texas. Now, I love Bravestar. I (laughs) love the series. I love the film. There's so much to just like about it, even though it doesn't really have much of any kind of cultural cachet, uh, I think that in in some ways it, it certainly owes a debt to he man. It recalls the he- man formula in many ways, but it is such a, an interesting film. It has a respectful take on Native American mythology. It has an interesting and I think better take than most space westerns when it comes to integrating science fiction with the Western, offering something of a believable premise. I just like everything about this film. I mean, it may be a premise that didn't have, let's say, much gas and couldn't have lasted much longer than a year on television. But I'm, I'm pleased that we're able to finally, finally talk about it here on the show until we do another whole episode about it. Oh
1: yeah, that's coming for sure. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. Um, you know, until I saw the film, I didn't realize how important uh, Native American imagery was to the Brave Star franchise. I hadn't seen the series at all, so so that really took me by surprise. And those are some of the coolest moments in this film. The this this character shaman who's sort of like Brave Star's spiritual advisor in a way he's yeah. the the imagery there is like right out of uh um, this old illustrated magazine i used to read the rook it was called it was like a huh. time traveling western figure and i love that mix of of those two that clash of genres and yeah. those scenes with shaman are just like they're right out of like an omni magazine cover from the yeah. 70s it's, it's it has a real 70s look to it The the future here isn't gleaming Star Trek future. It's closer to something like Alien. It's like crumbled civilizations
2: and ruined spaceships. (laughs) It it has a a fun and interesting look. I I think that's right. I think there are a a lot of influences from the more serious cinematic and televisual science fiction of the 70s and 80s that we see in here. I mean, but to go back to the Native American imagery, Brave Star is a Native American protagonist. and I think it's actually pretty significant that that is not really something we see in film Westerns until at least the 1990s. And it's clearly something we're still struggling with and still maybe have only recently begun to um, provide a context where we can actually have, you know, compelling native American characters who aren't the sidekick. So here we have a Saturday morning cartoon show that gets its its own movie, not a compilation movie where they put together different episodes and call it a movie, an actual movie with a, a native American protagonist who's, Superpowers stem from a kind of Native American mysticism. I mean, that to me is kind of amazing, kind of crazy. But then, I suppose that was the '80s. Now, you mentioned
1: the the henchman in the film, Tex Hex, yes. who is my favorite character. Um, yes. He looks surprisingly like uh, Devlin from Ghost Town. Oh uh, yeah, from the horror episode. He's I mean he could be his uh, you know, spitting image basically the animated version of Devlin. He also functions in a way as Brave Star Skeletor. He's got yes. the the wicked laugh, almost the same exact laugh as Skeletor has. So he's a really fun character. Uh, unfortunately, the henchman Cactus Head, I believe, <laughs> is sorely underused in this film. <laughs> but I'm I'm only assuming that's because his power seems to be nothing but two laser guns and a cactus on his head. <laughs> like, I don't know how that functions, but... uh
2: Well, you and I just need to sit down and watch all of the episodes of the TV series <laughs> and we can see it. You know, the, I guess the story behind Tex Hex is he uh was originally designed as a villain for the old filmation Ghostbuster series. So not the real Ghostbusters, the Let's Go Ghostbusters. But uh, Lou uh, Schemer liked the character so much that he had him pulled from Ghostbusters and reserved for some later use. So, this is also a series that really originated with a particularly compelling, at least visually, v- villain.
1: Now, uh, every Western hero needs a sidekick, and Bravestar's sidekick, the robotic horse 3030, 30 is, 30. is pretty cool. He's a pretty cool Chewbacca ripoff, I think. He actually reminds me of. Uh, that character Hawk from the Buck Rogers in the Twenty Fifth Century sure. show. Yeah. The, the the sidekicks always had a cooler look than the hero, and they got to do more fun stuff. So when whenever Thirty Thirty transforms into a robotic horse and Brave Star jumps on his back, it's
2: I gotta say that's that's not bad. That's pretty. I I can get behind that. Well, the animation on the transformation is is pretty awesome too. Now you, you make a good point that. 3030 like all good sidekicks is able to have flaws you know a temper in, in this particular case it gets to be a little bit more surly and has a serves as a really good foil in some ways to brave star in, in the tradition of all the great western heroes.
3: The Legend of Brave Star is the brand new animated feature film by Master Animator's Filmation and is sure to thrill adults and children alike with its strong cast of intergalactic heroes and villains. Released on video in a unique LED display and sound effect video box, it's sure to be a Christmas video hit. Paper <laughs>
0: hope you got this all figured out nope i was afraid of that
1: the last film that i want to bring up before our interview with phil nibelink is of course an american tale Will goes west now we've been prepping this animation episode for almost two months now and in that time whenever i've mentioned the subject of the show to friends Each of them said, without fail, you're going to talk about Five Goes West, right? In my experience, there's just something about this movie that makes it the first thing most people think of when they hear animated Western. Maybe that's because viewers have a powerful attachment to the original An American Tale. Or perhaps it's just because the film literally includes the phrase Goes West in the title. I I really don't know. For my money, it's the beautiful hand-drawn animation, and the genuinely funny script that makes Fievel Goes West such a timeless favorite. And naturally, the presence of the iconic Jimmy Stewart is a big reason why classic Western fans enjoy it so much. But what do you think, Andrew? Why is this the movie that most people tend to think of when they hear animated Western? Have you noticed that too?
2: I I certainly have. I, I think part of it may be that, you know, guys like you and me have a of a certain age, grew up in an era when there actually weren't a lot of Westerns. So I can imagine for for many people, this might have been their introduction to the Western in many ways. I, I also think it, it has a something of a benefit in that as much as it is a sequel to An American Tale, it kind of isn't. It was released so long after. And the film is so different uh, in tone, in the style of animation, that it's really difficult to see it as a as a direct continuation of the story. In fact, the the early parts of Five Will Goes West, I mean, they're, they're it's almost as if in in a few lines of dialogue, they completely dismiss the entire premise of the first film, and decide well we need to go west. So it does kind of stand apart in those ways. But I, I also feel like there's just something kind of unexplainable about it. It's a delightful film certainly, but it. It seems to have somehow you know, caught lightning in a bottle once it got to home video.
1: It's weird. Around the same time, or maybe it's just the something that happens with genre sequels. There's a tendency at a certain point in a franchise to do something different with a character, and a lot of times it's just send them to a new location.
2: Well, so, in space being a popular one.
1: <laughs> yeah, we get Leprechaun in space, Jason Voorhees in space, there's Home Alone, Lost in New York. Um, right. And and then Back to the Future Three sends Marty to the Old West. It's West. it's like a a convenient way to do that. And and you know in some ways it stands out as just like I don't know they there was no other idea behind it. But I feel like this one it feels organic enough that it, I don't feel like it just suddenly turned into a you know an arbitrary Western. It feels baked in more here. No, I,
2: I think that's true. And in, in that way, it is a continuation of the immigrant story. I mean, there were folks who would arrive on, on the shores of this country and discover that it sucked. <laughs> that uh, I mean, <laughs> that it was uh, large cities filled with crime, they were dirty, that it wasn't the, the dream that you might have imagined. That was the experience for a number of people. And many of those people went West. You know, one – way that you describe the film uh, in the interview we're going to hear a little bit later is as this being sort of like the heaven's gate of animated Westerns. And it, it certainly, I don't think once they leave New York and Five goes West, they don't really do much with the immigrant story in the way that the first film did. But nevertheless, it, it is a legitimate narrative. So in, in that way, as, as much as they kind of discount the entire first film, it still is a logical progression.
1: It also has to be said, there are some big laughs in this movie, Um, many of them (laughs) coming from Dom DeLuise. Now, I'm a a huge Dom DeLuise fan. I've probably seen the two Cannonball Run movies at least 20 times each. His partnership with Burt Reynolds is one of my favorite comedy duos in in screen history. So to hear his voice work in this film, and, and Phil will discuss working with him. It's some of my favorite parts of the interview. But to hear Dom DeLuise Chew the scenery with some of these lines is just an absolute joy he He brings so much energy to it it's a really it's almost like it's weird to call a vocal performance a physical performance, but it feels like that it, it feels really uh you know energetic in that way
2: oh definitely and that's really the you know the tip of the iceberg when it comes to just great performances in this film, all of which are discussed so we've also got uh, John Cleese, excellent as the villain. Uh, You know, we have John Lovitz in a small role. Amy Irving is terrific as Miss Kitty, kind of Mae West-style dancehall girl, I think you describe her as. And then, uh, of course, probably in some ways the biggest Western name of all, none other than James Stewart as the downtrodden canine Western sheriff, Wiley Burp. Okay, so before
1: we speak with our guest, I want to share just some info about him. Phil Nibelink worked for 10 years at Disney and was a character animator on films like The Fox and the Hound, The Black Cauldron, and The Great Mouse Detective. He also served as directing animator on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. After that, he spent 10 years working under Steven Spielberg as an animation director on numerous projects. And more recently, he's turned his attention to independent filmmaking— Writing and directing features like Puss in Boots and Romeo and Juliet Sealed with a Kiss. But of course, it's his work on An American Tale, Five Will Goes West, that caused us to reach out to him. So without further ado, I think it's time we say hello to Phil Niblink. Hello, Phil. It is an honor having you join me today on How the West Was Cast. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we talk about your amazing work on An American Tale, Fievel Goes West, I'd love to hear about your early introduction to the Western genre as an audience member. So before you became a filmmaker, when you were just sort of growing up and experiencing movies early on, were you a fan of the Western genre?
4: Well, my father and I used to watch uh, Wild Wild West every Friday night. We, we, my father would make a big bowl of popcorn and we would make root beer floats. And so that was a, uh, a must-do thing on Friday night, my father and I.
1: Yeah, that, a lot of people bond with their dad over westerns is what I found while talking to people about the genre. It's very popular. And that was a TV western. So were, you, were shows like Rawhide and Gunsmoke and Bonanza, were those on your radar?
4: Yeah, I grew up with all those, sure.
1: What about films? Did you go to the movies to see Westerns that were, were happening at the time, theatrical films?
4: Well, my my big exposure to the uh, Western thing was when I started out of high school, I went to Rome and I studied at Il Instituto Stato per la Cinematografia e la Televisione. And we studied in the school that was created by Dino De Laurentiis. And we were surrounded by all the guys who had <laughs> had just come off of making all these spaghetti Westerns. You know, although I never met Sergio Leone, I, you know, I was surrounded by his crew and people and they had all become teachers at, at the school. So I got a good helping of the good, bad and the ugly and, you know, fistful of dollars and all those great classics.
1: Uh, that must have been so amazing to see those, those artisans right there in person. So turning to Five goes west. When you were at the Pioneertown International Film Festival that I saw the film just recently at when you spoke, you shared an amazing story about how you actually came to direct the film and it involved you hang gliding of all things. So can you share that with, with me again in my audience? Cause that was just, just a remarkable tale.
4: Well, I can tell you that um, I was working on uh, Oliver and Company at the t- at the time, and um, Richard Williams uh, was coming through Disney Studios looking for animators uh, that he could steal. And uh, I I saw a clip that they had done a test of the of the footage where they had Roger Rabbit interacting with a um, an actor, and I said, "I'll do it. I want to go. I want to go." And so they shipped me to London, and that's where I got to meet Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg and all those great guys, because it was a co-production. And um, halfway through the production, uh, Don Bluth said no thank you and to Steven Spielberg. He wanted, Spielberg wanted to do American Tale, Fife Goes West as a sequel, and uh, Don Bluth passed, and I immediately said, I'll do it, I want to do it, I'll direct it, I'll direct it. And they said, well, there's a another director that we really have in mind, but thank you. And I said, ah, okay. So Roger Rabbit finished, and I went off hang gliding with my uh, my wife, and we were up somewhere in the, <laughs> up where in the Lake District, north of uh, northwestern England, and um, got the news that that director had passed. And so I landed my hang glider. I, I saw below me one of those little red uh, uh, phone boxes, and I landed next to it and I got in there with a whole bucket of coins and I punched the coins in and I called long distance to L.A. And I said, oh, no, I want to do it. I want to do it. And they, and they said, oh, OK, sure, you can do it. And that's how I got the job.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's so amazing. And now, in terms of co-directing the film with Simon Wells, how was that work divided up? Did you have a, a certain areas that each of you covered or did you work in tandem?
4: Well, we talked a long time about that, Simon and I, and um, he and I were friends on on Roger Rabbit. He was also a directing animator, and so he, he and I had already had a good working relationship, but we realized that I'm kind of good at silly comedy, and he was good, more better at uh, action and dramatics, and so we, the script kind of beep-bopped between those two beats, and so Every other sequence was mine and uh, and or his. And um, it, it was good because we were playing to our strengths.
1: That's so smart that each of you approached it that way because this film really marries those two things so well. That kind of zany comedy... I mean, that was a, a laugh-filled screening that we had at Pioneer Town. People really approached it like a full-on comedy. So you've got that, but then there are some really breathless action sequences that you're talking about here. Those, uh, the, the escape through the the sewer tunnels on the on the water, and I mean, this is like a really exciting film. So I can see why those two things work together. Now, now you mentioned the script, which is credited, I think, to Charles Swenson for story and Flint Dilly for the script itself. So how much input did you and Simon have on that? Were you all collaborating together to develop it?
4: Yes. I mean, the um, scripts go through lots and lots of changes, and, and there's a lot of people who worked on it and put words into it. I mean, certainly Simon and I added to it, but also uh, Steven Spielberg added voices. And then when we get great, great actors like John Cleese, he takes those words and just Runs with them and improvs like crazy, so you end up with something very different from what was originally written, and, and it, it's always going uphill. You know, what do you mean by that? Well, everybody stands on the shoulders of the person beneath them, and and makes it better and better and better and better, and and it, it becomes more alive. I think films where they um, get stuck following the script exactly feel just like that. Feel like they're. Uh, Leaden and and lifeless.
1: Now, when you first began working on Five Will Goes West, did you rewatch specific live action westerns in prep for the film so that you could draw inspiration or specific images you wanted to echo in your movie?
4: Sure, Sergio Leone, Sergio Leone, over and over again. Looked at all those films because we wanted to spoof them. In fact, what was it? Uh, Good, Bad, and the Ugly. I forget. Yeah, it was, I got so frustrated how slow the cutting was that I, I ended up. Out of frustration, cutting it, tightening it, you know, and I, I sped up. Good, bad, and the ugly. I, I think I, I think I improved it.
0: <laughs> the good. The bad. The ugly.
1: Well, one of the things that I loved in revisiting the film was that it, it still maintains that immigrant experience that we got from the original American tale. And we had just done an episode a couple of months ago on the film Heaven's Gate, Michael Cimino's movie, which is very much about the immigrant tale as a Western. It, it's a common story here. So I think this was an sort of an inspired property to to turn into a Western. It's It worked perfectly.
4: Well, yeah, it was a natural because, you know, the first film, of course, he came from Russia, being chased by cats. They immigrated to New York, but found problems in New York. And so the same idea that, you know, hey, New York is not such a great place, so we are going to be chased by cats, and that's going to motivate the characters, the muskowitz family, to go to um, the West. Now, you worked for
1: many years on projects with Steven Spielberg, including this movie, of course. And one of the things I find surprising about his filmography is that he hasn't directed a Western. He's produced a few of them, but I don't think he's really directed his own Western. Is he a a big fan of the genre in your experience?
4: Yes, very much so. Yeah. But I I learned so much from him. It's amazing. I mean, he has a specific style and uh, I wanted to learn that style and um, so we tried in, in 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 many cases to to work the Spielberg style into the movie
1: oh it's very apparent yeah it really has that that classic spielbergian feel but w- w- with a i don't know a, like you said a zanier tone there's sort of a a real madcap quality to this that i just love it's really inspired that way um, and a lot of that comes from the voices And so I wanted to talk about some of the voice actors you have. It's just such a brilliant cast starting. I have to single out Dom DeLuise who Uh, steals every moment in this film as tiger. So his performance is just hilarious. So what was it like to work with DeLuise on this project?
4: Well, we flew all over the world to record these actors and um, he was staying with Burt Reynolds and Lonnie Anderson in Jupiter, Florida. And so when we landed in Miami, it was a, a hurricane was actually going through and we rented a car and drove for thousands of miles through the the storm to get to Jupiter only to find, oh, cause we, they wanted, he wanted to record at uh, Burt Reynolds personal studio, which was down the street from their home. But this thing was, you, the rain was falling on the tin roof and there was trucks going by on the freeway and we couldn't, we could just couldn't record there. So when Dom DeLuy's, the door burst open, and there he was. We had to get down on a bent knee and beg him. Could we please drive? We found a studio to the south in Fort Lauderdale, so we we, we did a um, uh, we like Smokey and the Bandit. We went down to, uh, south to go to the uh, to the better studio, which for, for fortunately was soundproof. And so we then spent the next ten hours. God bless him. He he was he worked extremely hard for us, and he recorded the whole session in 10 hours. It was amazing. He has a lot of lines. And uh, he had an assistant who was always bringing food to him, right? And he would bring these plates of of vegetables and sandwiches and hors d'oeuvres and you name it. It was a con- continual stream of plates coming in. And uh, we came to the part in the uh, movie where the little Indian mice are bringing tiger a uh, plates full of food and he's and he got oh this is great because now i get to eat and act at the same time <laughs> so he was like stuffing the food into his mouth and saying the lines and and you can see it in the movie it was great because all that munching is actually him chewing his vegetables now, do
1: you just let an actor like him go for these sessions? Do you sort of subtly direct him? How do you direct uh, someone who's so improvisational and so prone to finding the the funny in in these crazy moments?
4: Well, in animation, you record scratch track first. So we would do. I, I storyboard Simon and I storyboarded the whole film, and we would record our own voices and we had the whole thing pre-edited in effect. And I would show a little bit of that to Dom. And I was, I did the scratch track for Dom's voice, you know, (laughs) you know, those voices. And I, he looked at that stuff and listened to me and he looked, he says, who's doing the voice and scratch voice of me. And I said, I am. (laughs) He says, he just looked at me and just laughed and laughed. And he says, okay, I don't want to hear anymore. (laughs) Let me just go. And so, uh, he's very self-directing. It's brilliant. He'll, he'll just do take after take until he's happy. So I, I, I could just be more or less hands off. He, he knew what he, he wanted to do. And, and God bless him, the thing would get better and better. And he would depart from the script and say, no, it should be this way or I should say that. And yes, please. That's that. Yes, that is better. Let's go that way. That was the beauty of working with somebody as talented as Dom is that he understood where funny is but not lose the story point. So he would hit both at the same time. He's still hanging on to what the point of the sentence is, but making it in funnier and even clearer way to sell it.
1: Right. I, I guess that comes from working with Mel Brooks for film after film in the, throughout the 70s. He, he did quite a few with him,
4: And, and yeah, and also Burt Reynolds.
1: <laughs> of course. Oh my God, the, what a team. The two of them were in so many films.
0: Listen, Fiefel. I think there's something I forgot to mention. The only reason I'm not a moccasin right now is because they think I'm a god. And this conversation is making me look very ungodlike.
3: Tiger, listen to me. I have to warn my family. The cats are gonna turn them into mulch. These folks get very
0: offended if you eat and run. I'll join you as soon as I
3: can. You promise?
0: I promise. Cross my heart and hope to cry.
3: Oh, Tiger, I almost forgot. How do you get to Green River? Just grab a
0: passing sage coach. (laughs) Okay, see you later, Tiger.
3: Adios.
0: Sage coach, get it? Sage.
1: Now, the movie's villain is voiced by John Cleese, who you mentioned, and he just turns in such a wonderfully energetic performance. It's so funny and so dastardly, but you'd still like the character. So can you share some memories of working with Cleese? Was he similar to DeLuise in, in certain ways?
4: Yes, in that he we, again, let him uh, just cut his leash and let him improvise if he felt like it. So all that stuff where he's going, y'all, 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 you know, he's, there was only, it was only written into the script maybe twice. And he just, he just put the pedal to the metal and just did the y'all over and over again. It was brilliant. I, I found him to be um, very intellectually curious. He he would ask a lot of questions and um, he would be caught by all sorts of things around him and, and question things, but he was so curious about our process that he became a friend of the production and he showed up to our studio, I want to say three times and would just hang out and wander about and introduce himself to people. He would even go into the corners where we have the, just the people doing the in-betweens and the small uh, little tiny projects. And he would just go into these dark corners and find these people and hi, how are you? What are you working on? And, and I, and I, and everybody loved that. It really was just such a, such a boost because uh, the crew loved him, loved working with his voice. And here he is taking a real interest in what everybody is doing.
1: It's brilliant. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, I mean, he, he dealt in his own way with animation. There's a lot of animation in the Monty Python sketches that, sure. that Terry Gilliam really added a lot to that. His, his line that ends up in the trailer, the let the saliva flow line that he right. delivers is classic. I mean that is one of those ones you put in his his reel. Uh, was that all scripted and he he just did that line do you remember?
4: I I believe that line was written.
1: Now does he look at character sketches before he starts voicing this character? Do you work with him on showing him versions of the character?
4: Yeah, whenever we did a uh, recording session, we would always bring our um, animatic, which is just the story sketches with the rough sound and rough music. And um We'd show them a bit of that, and we would also have a board that would have the character designs. And so we would talk about who this character is, what's going on inside of his head, what's his attitude towards Feifel, and that conversation gets them started. And um, yeah, it was it's it's a good way to get an actor started, so they know who and what they're trying to do.
0: flow
1: Amy Irving voices the character of Miss Kitty in the film, and she is a classic Western saloon girl, or a Mae West. She's very much a a Mae West-style character. Mm -hmm. So did you work with her on sort of capturing that Mae West quality? Is is that how you directed her?
4: I think we used the word Mae West, yeah. I think we had always seen, uh, certainly the character design is Mae West. I I remember at the end of the session, she was still in the recording booth, and uh, she got a call from Stephen and um he asked well how's it how did it go and and she says wow these guys are great they they really pulled a performance out of us and i thought oh that's that's really nice to hear Thing. and then she says yeah and they make me say all these funny things and 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 steven said i could hear him on the phone what funny things and I, and she's and and she turns to me she says guys what funny things did you make me say and i said you said whoo whoo hoo, hoo, hoo. remember she was pretending to be an owl at one point mm-hmm. and i said you know she and she repeated that to steven and then Stephen, oh okay that's fine because <laughs> that was in the script so i was i was in trouble for one second but i said he
1: wanted to make sure you guys were still keeping keeping things
4: on track that's right that's we haven't gone off the rails too far
3: <laughs> you put a mouse on the stage and your saloon's gonna be as empty as death valley on a cold day in june when the snow don't fall what they'll love her I'll adore her. And those who don't will answer to me. Anything you say, pussy poos. Yes,
0: I have mentioned that I dislike being referred to as pussy poos.
3: Yeah? Well, maybe I'm not so happy about being dumped in nature's ashtray 500 miles from a pastrami sandwich either. Pussy (laughs) poos.
1: Now, in some ways, the star of the film is Philip Glasser, who voices mm-hmm. Feifel in both of the American Tale
4: movies. Now, he was quite young when you worked with him, correct? He would have, gosh, he must have been eight or nine or something. I, I We can look that up, of course. But, um, yeah, he was, he was definitely a little boy. Uh, exceedingly precocious. Smart as a whip. But... <laughs> Very, very short attention span. He would like say a line and then jump out of his chair and run around. <laughs> I'd have to go into the recording room and grab him and say, well, that was good, but we're going to get you to do another take, please. And so, yeah, no, no, no. We, we got a really good performance out of him and it was great. Uh, but working with child actors is slow. And I, I, I know that because I've, I have four children and I've used them all for my scratch track and soundtracks in other Productions and again, they say a line and they think they want to go. The one then they want to go play. <laughs> so,
1: oh, so it's really like corralling cats to try to keep yes, them, yes, keep them um, on sho- oh, shoveling that's fleas. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to look at it. Now, he since he had already voiced Fifel in the first film, did he have um, his own vision of the character that, that he would work with you on? Or?
4: Well. A child actor more or less just plays himself. Usually, kids that young don't don't aren't able to modulate their performance. It's just them, so you get who they are. And so he is that character in real life, or he was then. I don't know. He's probably an adult. He's an adult now, so I don't know who he, what he's become.
3: And then the hero Wiley burps, squinted across the dusty street, hopelessly surrounded by the cactus cat gang. He stood his ground, refusing to back down.
1: And then, of course, for Western fans, there's the iconic Jimmy Stewart in his last film role. So Stewart is, of course, one of the greatest Western stars there ever was. So what were those recording sessions like? That had to be a really special experience.
4: Yes, it was an honor and a pleasure. I remember on all our recording sessions, there was never anybody. It was just Simon and I and our editor and the, the engineer recording. So it was just like four people in the control room. But the day we recorded... Jimmy Stewart, I walk in there and there's like 40 people packed into a control room, the size of a toilet. And where did all these people come from? Well, they're fans. <laughs> and um, so anyways, uh, the door burst open and there he was. And we got up to sit down and we said, well, I'm going to, we're going to do one line at a time and we'll go through the lines until we get it right. And then we'll move on to the next line is how you usually proceed. And he he, I guess he didn't understand or I didn't make myself clear because he just started reading the top of the script and said, fade in, you know, <laughs> and then he would, and then Wiley burp is asleep on the, on the, uh, on the porch of the uh, building. And it's like, he read through the whole script plus the <laughs> stage directions. And I turned to Steve and I said, should we stop him? And and Stephen said, no, "No, no, let him go, let him go. So we just sat there while he read the whole script, you know, sweats pouring down my brow because i know we've got to go back and catch every one of these lines but he plowed through every page and okay went in say thank you very much that was great now we're just gonna do one line at a time so we went back and caught every line and he was he was brilliant brilliant and we got lots and lots of stuff up that we could use from him
3: we need you sheriff burp the cats are gonna turn us into mouse burgers you gotta help us now
0: let this sleeping dog lie, son. Dog got it, I'm dog tired. I'm tired of leading a dog's life and fighting like cats and dogs against cats and dogs. A young pup's dog on my trail trying to become top dog. I'm going to the dogs in a dog-eat-dog dog world, son. I'm, I'm so far over the hill, I'm on the bottom of the other side. Now, I think
1: you mentioned that one of the lines is actually you. One of his lines, how did that happen?
4: Yeah, what What happened is that if, after you make a movie, these things take two or year, three years sometimes, and um, you realize you need to make story changes or you come up with better ideas or you want a line change because you've got a plot thing that you need to clarify. So you do pickups. And we went back a couple of years later to do the pickups and the poor guy just wasn't up to it and so we thanked him very much and put him out the door well what are we going to do we need to record a couple of these lines and so i said oh no i can do jimmy Stewart." so (laughs) i (laughs) i i I, there was really the only one line we needed which is 10 hot so i went into the recording studio and i recorded 50 million versions of 10 hot 10 hot 10 hot and it's in the movie, but they've, we made sure that the music was nice and loud, so we didn't quite hear me as clearly, which is probably all to the good. Oh, that's
1: great. It, it, it sounds pretty authentic. I feel like I could have just interviewed you here as Jimmy Stewart the entire interview. Well, well now well,
4: well, thank you. <laughs> so
1: the film was scored by the brilliant James Horner, who is yes. one of the greatest composers of all time. So what are your memories of working with him on this project? And what was it like when you first heard those Western themes he wrote, these orchestral themes that are just so invigorating?
4: Well, you know, I had the honor of going to the Abbey Road studio to record the London Symphony Orchestra. You know, that's the uh, it's the recording studio in London where the, uh, 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 the Beatles recorded their album, the Abbey Road album. And so the editor and, and Simon and I had took a picture on the sidewalk where like the cover album where the, the, the four of them are walking. It was just the three of us, but we got somebody to take a picture of us on that sidewalk. But um, yeah, it was great. Uh, his music is excellent and very powerful. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the name of the composer for all of the Sergio Leone films is Marconi, right? Have I got that correct. right? Yep. And um, so when we had the music spotting session with uh, Stephen and, and James and Simon and I, we went through a lot of the Marconi uh, soundtracks uh, and tried very much to pick up on the instrumentation because Marconi used a lot of strange combinations of of choir, electric guitar, you know, drums and stuff, and you know these these choral groups going. Huh! you know that kind of stuff in the background and uh, so we tried to squeeze as much of that stuff in there because the whole film is just a, a love letter to uh, Sergio Leone, Sergio Leone and Marconi
1: oh it definitely comes across especially in some of the the visual designs the the care that we see in the costumes of the characters in the background uh, did you um can you talk about costuming? Animated characters, what's the, that like? I, I understand how it's done in live action films, but how does that work in animation?
4: Well, in animation, you have to be mindful of a thing called line mileage, which means that the more drawing is in a character, the longer it takes, and that directly affects your budget when you add up that it takes, you know, a hundred thousand drawings to make a movie. And so, um, we had to borrow and steal as much as we could from the westerns but we couldn't get too frilly with too much lace or anything or else the production would it would sink the production so you try to capture the shape of the western costume but be careful not to detail it too much because you know three buttons is more expensive than two buttons so
1: amazing wow you're right and what about the backgrounds? The the landscapes in this film are—I I could just look at those for so long. There, there are so many beautiful images of the town that we see. This decrepit-looking town, the desert looks so fantastic. There are echoes of Monument Valley throughout the film. Right. Uh, did you look at actual places and uh, previous Western films to capture that look?
4: Sure, we had a great art director, Neil Ross, and he—we um, we would pull up for pho- this was before the days of the internet. There was no internet in those days. And so he couldn't just type in uh, monument Valley, but, but we would struggle and find pictures and buy books and stuff that had these f- great photographs. And so our, our um, art department had all these lovely big coffee table books of, uh, of the West and uh, monument Valley. And uh, there's also um, a sequence, you know, where there's the training sequence between um, Tiger, where Wiley Burp trains tiger. And one of the sequences is we we wanted to place it in the Vasquez rocks. And I don't know if you know, but for your audience, the Vasquez rocks is a um, a a park where the plate tectonics have smashed against each other and the rocks are standing up at a 45-degree angle. And it's used in a million Westerns. You know, it's uh, Blazing Saddles and Star Trek and you name it have been filmed out there. Oh, and and the Flintstones more recently, but uh, oh, and and the Lion King rock, the Lion King rock is there. So, anyways, of course we had to we had to use that that location in the film. <laughs>
1: That training sequence you mentioned is one of the highlights in the film. I think that when it begins in the mine shaft, as Tiger's learning to get his bark going right. and get those wonderful echoes, there's a beautiful looking background image of that sequence where we see the the ruins of an old mine track, Right. where the the bars are just bent off into nowhere. It it, it hints that this was a once a, a much livelier town and now it's all gone to seed i love that do, do you have particular favorite sequences in the film uh sequences that you really think you just got it perfectly you you really nailed it <laughs> well
4: i i try to nail it on every sequence but as an animation director when you look at your at your work you always see the problems uh and remember the fights and and, <laughs> and the arguments and because in an animated film you have like you know over 200 artists and artists being artists they all have their own individual style and and you have to be careful not to bruise their ego because of course everybody's sensitive about their work and so as an animation director you're trying to make everybody make the same movie which is difficult but The key is to cast people in what you think they are good at. And so that way you can get the best out of each sequence. And so, uh, yeah, I was lucky to be surrounded by a lot of talented people who were able to bring their enormous gifts to the movie.
1: Now, one of my favorite sequences in the film is when Fivel hitches a ride on the rolling tumbleweed, or as he calls it in the film, I think, uh, a sage coach, which is such a great line. So do you remember where that concept came from? Because it just seems like such a natural. I'm surprised it would never been done before.
4: I, I I I'm not sure if I remember this correctly, but I think we made that up. I think Simon and I came up with that out of whole cloth. And then I guess it Perhaps it was Simon's idea, I forget to use the Roland, uh, Roland, Roland which comes it comes from the Blues Brothers that that take and we wanted that version because there's something uh, over the top about that performance and we, we knew that it was a universal production and so we reached out and within just a few hours we were able to get permission from Universal to use it. So great <laughs> And so I storyboarded to that.
1: Yeah, to have Belushi's singing and Aykroyd's singing in your film had to be a lot of fun. That's yeah, that's wonderful. One of the funniest moments is that terrific visual gag where Feifel and Tiger just pass each other in the uh, desert, think assuming each other, they're both mirages. It's like right out of a classic Bob Hope Western, one of the silly visual gags. They, they're just... It's, it's peppered with those.
4: Yeah. And what's interesting about that is that they never do see each other. In fact, the the films continue and you keep thinking, well, what, aren't they going to turn around and see? No, we're, we're going to cut forward. And, and so it's only many sequences later that they actually connect. <laughs>
1: One of the things that I found really interesting about the film was how many fantasy sequences there are. It's not something you usually associate with the Western. It's more for the animation genre. And you married them so beautifully. So many of the characters are constantly imagining what their lives will be like, and we see it through their eyes, and then we get the reality that bleeds in. Was that something you really wanted to work on and, and pull out of this story, that marriage of reality and and what fantasy and illusion is all about?
4: I think that that was Steven's vision right from the beginning. He didn't want to be stuck in one location. He wanted to let the film breathe and, and go off into into what their ideal. See, it's all about dreams, right? And you always want to fulfill your dreams. So to show that, it, it animation lends itself to just being unhooked and letting the camera just fly into the person's imagination, and then be jolted and pulled back into the ugly reality.
1: When you mentioned the camera flying in, that's a a very good description of how the camera works in this film. This is one of the most active, fluid, hand-drawn animation cameras I've ever seen, that you're constantly sweeping in and doing these elaborate moves. Uh, Why was that the right style for this film, do you think?
4: That's very much Stephen's style. And, um, he, if I were to storyboard the thing in my usual flat style where it's just close up, long shot, close up, long shot, he'd say, no, 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 put it together, put all the shots together and make the camera go from a long shot into a close up and then pull back to reveal the three shot, you know, and, and, and so he was very much training us. And I, and I thank him profusely for this one lesson to connect the shots because that gives you a sense of geography a sense of continuity and also later in chases and stuff when you can get cuttier and cuttier you have come from something that is slower and more connected you have somewhere to go it's not it's not just a constant river of cuts it's it, it's paced better
1: now Feifel goes west had the I'll say unfortunate luck of opening directly opposite Beauty and the Beast, in November of 1991, I believe. So how did that end up happening, the two biggest animated films of the year, opening on the same day or the same weekend almost? Where's the logic in that?
4: Well, wait a minute. I I think it was, as, as, as I remember it, it was Mrs. Doubtfire with, starring Robin Williams. We can check that, of course. But the point is, because I remember distinctly, We, we got worried about that and said, and people were saying, well, it's okay. It's counter programming, you know, it's, but it was still family entertainment. And I remember standing on the shipping deck of deluxe films where we were running up prints and there were all these cans of FIFA goes west and all these cans of Mrs. Doubtfire and these big trucks are backing up and to take the prints across the country. And I thought to myself, gosh, you know, if I could just set fire to all these cams of Mrs. Dunford, I'll win.
1: (laughs) Although it maybe didn't find its exact audience during its theatrical run, the film just blew up on video, on VHS, on television. It became such a beloved movie. I, I, I was looking at so many people on social media in preparation for this interview to see if people are still talking about this film on Twitter and and it's a constant stream of people talking about what it meant to them, how important this one is, how many times they've seen it, how they showed it to their children. So it really did find its audience. Um, what do you think it is about this movie that worked so well for people on video as well? It, it, that strikes me as odd. It's such a huge theatrical looking movie.
4: Well, I'm touched to hear that. And I do get a lot of people telling me that over the years that you know it's meant a lot to them. And uh, You know, you never know. When you make a movie, you don't have an audience. It's not like a play or a stand-up comedian who immediately gets the feedback. We work sort of in a vacuum, and we show the film only to other animators and filmmakers who are the worst audience in the world because they're always critical of their own work. And you try and test screen it to to family audiences, and just that's never a very good metric either. So I don't know why it's a success frankly and I I mean I personally like it, you know, I love it because I put my heart and soul into it and there's a lot of me in that movie, but why a film is a success and why it's not is just always a mystery and I think it's a mystery to all filmmakers because some films that are really good flop and some films that are really crap blow up and become, you know, big hits. It's a mystery, I think. <laughs>
1: So what did you think when you first heard that the Pioneertown Film Festival wanted to program this film in their inaugural festival? Uh, Did they approach you? How did that happen?
4: Sure. I I got an email two years ago from the the programmer director for the festival. (laughs) I said yes, but then COVID hit and the whole thing had to go up on, you know, go on hiatus for another year. So they tried again the second year and invited me again. And they invited Simon Wells as well, but Simon had other commitments. But uh, (laughs) it was such a pleasure to show it to the audience because the people, everybody in the audience was so hungry to see it. And all of them had childhood experiences with the film. So I guess... That makes me feel like an old man, but
1: uh. <laughs> well, I could tell you were making a lot of people happy. For listeners who weren't there at the film festival after the screening, Phil gave a, a wonderful Q and A, and then proceeded to provide anyone who lined up in front of his table a hand-drawn sketch of "Fievel Goes West" for, from one of the characters. And the looks on the people's faces was just uh, magical. You could see people reverting back to their their childhood. It was it was just fantastic.
4: It, well, it was fantastic because we were out in the middle of the desert. Dr- dr- <laughs> I'm usually in an air-conditioned studio drawing. So sitting out on a on a bale of hay, it, we even had a, roller, a rattlesnake go by, you know, wow. <laughs> and drawing. And there, some, suddenly when somebody would yell, close your eyes, and you, a, a twister was coming, right? <laughs> and we'd, we'd all have to, you know, cover our faces and turn away as this twister would barrel through and pelt us with stones and dust and stuff. And all the water bottles got knocked over and I got soaking wet. But it was fine. It was great. It was lovely. I mean, it's better than sitting in an air-conditioned studio.
1: Now, the, the movie has a real life-goes-on ending. The, the final moment between Feifel
0: and Wiley is sort of contemplative. Maybe a real hero the last one to hear about it. But you you pulled me out of a gutter, and for that I owe you some thanks. Just, Just remember, Fievel, one man's sunset is another man's dawn. I don't know what's out there beyond those hills, but if you ride yonder, head up, eyes steady, heart open, I think one day you'll find that you're the hero you've been looking for. It's a, a beautiful moment. It's it's very f-
1: a thoughtful moment. Was there ever, ever any thought given to a follow-up to this film, a
4: direct sequel? I, I think it did go to television series. I, I don't know about that for sure, but correct me if I'm wrong. I do think that there were follow-ups.
2: In Maybe the,
1: like a spinoff uh, on TV, I guess. Yeah, you're right. The direct-to-video one. So, Phil, finally, looking back now on Feifel Goes West, more than three decades since its theatrical premiere— how would you sum this film's importance up in your career, in your life? What does it mean to you?
4: Well, from a career point of view, it was my first directorial debut. So um, I'm very appreciative to everybody who gave me a chance to do that. Also, it was a, a chance to uh, to work f- with and learn from my hero, Steven Spielberg, who I I learned an enormous amount from. And... I I found him to be exceedingly gracious with his uh, teaching and taking the time to walk me through what, or uh, us, all of us, walk us all through his vision of how filmmaking should be. And that was such such an honor and a pleasure. And and I learned so much. And all the people that I worked with on that, uh, we had a reunion. uh, I guess it was about five years ago. And I realized that as I looked around the room, All of these people were my good friends, and I have so many warm connections and bonds with all the crew, and there was like over 200 people. Well, if you want to count the L.A. crew and stuff, it ended up being close to 300, but all of them were great, and they are great people, and I'm still in contact with many of them.
1: Wow, you can't ask for much more than that, I guess, on a project like this. So, Phil, I just want to thank you again for speaking with me today about your movie. Seeing it on the big screen again the other week, it just holds up so beautifully. It's so timeless. It's such a, a joy ride that, that it takes you on. And I really appreciate you taking a few minutes out of your day to speak with me about this movie. It's, it means a lot to a lot of people.
4: Well, thank you. It's, yeah, it's a it's pleasure. And it's also a pleasure to go down memory lane and remember all the good experiences uh, that, and, and all the great people that I met and worked with. Well, Thank you again. Thank you. Somewhere. In
3: 1986, a little mouse made a big journey. Bye-bye. To a faraway land. America. What a place. What
0: a what a place.
3: But got lost along the way. He found a land of freedom. A land of enchantment and adventure. (laughs) A land of new beginnings. What's that over there? Well, that is more America. Can we go see it? Someday, you will come true. Now, someday is today. As Steven Spielberg presents An American Tale, Fievel Goes West, the further adventures of the Mauskowitz family as they meet old friends uh, and new enemies from the mean streets of New York City. I see you're missing an eye. wide open spaces where there's room for one and all. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah?
0: Yeah! Yeah!
3: Where a young mouse can stand tall. It's too tough, kid. Get out while you still can. And a cowardly cat can get a new start as Wow, a dog. Come on, tiger. We're rooting for you. With the voice talents of Dom DeLuise. Cat got your tongue? Amy Irving. Anything you say, pussy poo. You place your last hand, Sula. John Lovitz. I got seven more! John Cleese. Let the saliva flow! And Jimmy Stewart. you want to intimidate someone,
0: give them a lazy Whoa! <laughs>
3: Coming Thanksgiving from Steven Spielberg, An American Tale, Five Goes West.
1: Well, that wraps up our animation episode. But before you go, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Western Podcast. That's at, as in the at symbol, Western Podcast. All one word. Tell us about your favorite animated Western, or suggest another topic that you'd like us to cover on a future episode. Also, if you enjoy our show and want to help support it, the best way you can do that is by subscribing to it, on whatever platform you use. Simply click the subscribe button, and you'll never miss an episode. Until next time,
2: I'm Matthew Chernoff, and I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson, and you've been listening to How the West Was Cast.
0: Well, that was our show. We thank you kindly for listening and hope you'll come back again real soon. Till then, keep your saddle oiled and your guns greased. We'll be seeing ya.